You may have heard the expression, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Now, pardon the grammar, but that's how they talked back in the Wild West. And as I understand it, saloons there would sometimes offer a bargain. They would give you a free meal if you would purchase your own drinks. And so then you know what they would do back in the kitchen? They would pour the salt on the meal. So by the time you were done, you would order enough beers to pay for your meal as well. There really isn't any such thing as a free lunch. Well, today is the fourth and final message in our mini-series on discipleship. What is discipleship? In Jesus' words, it is teaching people to obey everything that he commanded us. Or as we've taken from Colossians 1.28, it's helping people move to maturity in Christ. And you know what? That doesn't happen automatically, in case you hadn't noticed. Because of our fallen humanity and our sin nature, because the world and Satan are pulling us in exactly the opposite direction, it takes effort for us to make disciples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship in which he said that it is costly to follow Jesus because he demands that we give him our whole life. And I'd like to just take a quick turn on that phrase and talk this morning from 2 Corinthians 4 about the cost of disciple-making. Because there is a cost to that as well, and I suspect that's one of the reasons, if we really looked at it, that we don't do more disciple-making than we do. Now come with me to the city of Antioch in about the year AD 45. There were some believers from the city of Jerusalem that had moved up there maybe a decade earlier because of the persecution that Acts chapter 8 talks about. And Acts 11 says that in Antioch, the hand of the Lord was upon them. And there was a great number of people who believed and turned to the Lord. There was a thriving church of disciples in Antioch. But they were slow to pick up on Jesus' final command to his disciples, the one that Job Artemis preached on at the beginning of this series, that they were supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. And you see, there was another city a thousand miles to the west of Antioch by the name of Corinth. Corinth was the third most important city in the Roman Empire. It was the richest city in all of Greece and it was her sports and entertainment capital. It's kind of like the New York City, the LA, and the Las Vegas all wrapped up in one. The Corinthians were just a, a mix of people from all sorts of society. They had different religious philosophies, but they were fiercely independent. They were materialistic. They were a proud people, and above all, they were known for their loose living. In fact, in ancient Greek, in classical Greek, to act like a Corinthian meant to practice fornication. They had a temple in Corinth of, to Aphrodite that had a thousand temple prostitutes in it. So one of the ancient writers said that to live and survive in the city of Corinth, only the tough could do that. But here's the question. How are disciples in Antioch going to make disciples in Corinth? So what I'd like you to do for about 30 seconds is just to turn to your neighbor and answer that question. And you say, what question? <laughs> See, you thought I was going to talk to you for 40 minutes. No, I want your brains engaged. So you're, to answer this question, how are disciples in Antioch, how are they supposed to make disciples in Corinth? So go ahead and talk about that for just a second. It'll keep your brain working and the blood stirring in the system. Oh, that sounds beautiful. 
I like it. Very nice. Anybody want to come up and share your answers? Because <laughs> we don't do that in church. Well, if you came up with this answer, you're right. It's going to be tough. Okay, but hopefully you got a little farther than that, and you figured out that it's actually going to take somebody physically going from Antioch to Corinth. And that's exactly what Paul did. Led by the Holy Spirit, sent out by the church at Antioch, burning with a passion to preach Christ where he had never been named, Paul went to Corinth and he got the job done. 2,800-mile journey by foot and boat. Now, you need to remember, if you don't know, that this was 1,800 years before the inventions of electricity and the internal combustion engine. He was on foot for this journey. It was 1,850 years before the advent of air conditioning. And if you've ever lived outside of the U.S. without central air, you'll know what a challenge that is. And, and 1,900 years before the first long-haul commercial airline flight. And maybe hardest of all, 1,900 years before the first McDonald's. <laughs> How? Paul had nothing. How did he do that? It was tough. And he describes in 2 Corinthians how hard that job was. Look at a few verses with me. Chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance and afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. And then over to chapter 11, verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. That's how hard it was to make disciples in Corinth. But as Paul reflects on his ministry of global disciple-making in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this for us this morning. Even though it was tough, it was far and away the best thing I could ever have given my life to. And the same thing is true for you and me this morning. Disciple-making is going to be hard, but it's far and away the best thing that we can give our lives to. And in order to understand that, we need to understand three lessons about disciple-making from our text this morning. And the first lesson is this, the price of disciple-making, verses 7 to 10. Look with me at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is the treasure? In a word, it is the gospel. Look back at verse 6. It is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is understanding that the only way we get to God is through His Son, 
Jesus. And God has put that message in these jars of clay, our body. Now, he used imagery that was very familiar to first century people. They understood, for instance, that you could not store wine in gold and silver containers because it would go bad. You had to store wine in clay pots, clay pots that were weak and fragile and disposable and that couldn't handle a lot of pressure. And what he's saying is that the, the life of Christ, the beautiful wine that he gives us, has been entrusted to these clay pots. Now, to use a more contemporary example, we might say that God has put this treasure in styrofoam boxes. Because when you go to order your Big Mac at McDonald's, what do you get your hamburger in? You get it in a styrofoam box. There's a treasure in there. What do you focus on when you get that? You take a look at that box and say, man, this thing is just beautiful. I just love how it's designed and the color and you don't even notice the box. You rip it open, you throw your fries on the back side of it, dump some ketchup in there, and then you go for the meat. The box is just a way to get the treasure to your mouth. And then when you're done, what do you do with the box? Stomp on it, kick on it, throw it away. It doesn't matter. It's done its job. And that's exactly what Paul is saying. He says, God has put this treasure of the gospel, this meat, this food for the life of the world, in a styrofoam box, and that's all that I am. And this is done by design. Did you see the second part of verse 7? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If it were otherwise, the clay jar or the styrofoam box might begin to think that it was pretty important. Now, you and I think of Paul as a superstar, probably. We think that he's the Steph Curry of missionaries, that all he had to do was roll out of bed and disciple the Corinthians. Not true at all. In fact, he says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, that when I came to you, Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Kind of like me at my first homiletics class in seminary when it was my turn to preach, my knees were literally shaking. And I feel that same way this morning. Who am I to stand in front of you guys and talk to you? You're, you're smart people. You work hard. You understand the Bible. I'm, I'm nothing. And Paul felt like he was nothing to the Corinthians. In fact, he said, all I know how to do is to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's all I'm going to do among you. And you know what happened when he did that? God did a work in their lives and a number of them believed and a church was started and disciples were made. And he says, see, that could not have happened from this styrofoam box because I've got nothing. That just proves that the power of God was at work through me. You see, it was in his weakness that the power of God was free to work. And then he goes on in verses 8 and 9 to describe what it feels like to be a styrofoam box. Look at what he says. We are afflicted in every way. Yeah, you just noticed that from the list, right? But not crushed. We're not been, we've not been smashed to pieces so that we can't function anymore. We are perplexed. There are times that we don't know what to do. But we're not driven to despair. We're not completely baffled. We are persecuted. Yeah, I would think so. And the word literally there means hunted down. Think Harrison Ford in The Fugitive. 
You see, there were the bad guys after Paul who didn't like his message, and they didn't just kick him out of one town, they hunted him down from town to town. But he says, not forsaken. The very same word that Jesus used, incidentally, on the cross when he said, I was forsaken. God, why have you forsaken me? But the beauty is that because Jesus was forsaken on the cross and bore our sin and paid its price, now we have the promise from Jesus himself that as we go into all nations to make disciples, he is going to be with us always. And then finally, he said, I was struck down but not destroyed. They knocked me physically down to the ground, but they didn't kill me. So one commentator translates these verses, I was squeezed but not squashed, bewildered but not befuddled, pursued but not abandoned, knocked down but not knocked out. You see, Paul was like the Timex watch that takes a licking, but it keeps on ticking. Because it had the Energizer battery, to mix our advertising metaphors, of the life of Jesus Christ in him. And at the beginning of verse 10, Paul summarizes what he's been talking about. He says, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. Now that word could be translated the dying of Jesus because it's not the normal word used for death. It's a word that Paul only uses one other time in Romans 4.19 when he speaks of the hundred-year-old body of Abraham. And he said that was as good as dead. Now, do we have any hundred-year-old bodies in the room today? It'd be great if we did, but probably not because you don't really have energy to be in church if you're a hundred years old. What's happened to your body? It has been dying for a long time. And unless it's your grandma, you don't really even want to be around a hundred-year-old body because it's all shriveled and it doesn't function very well anymore. And, and that's the word Paul uses here. He says, I carry around in my body the dying of Jesus. And the Greek word is necrosis. You doctors will understand what that word means. It means the, the premature death of living cells in an organism. And it's not very pretty. Necrosis can result in gangrene, where parts of the body die and begin to shrivel up and begin to decay and begin to even putrefy in a living body. And, and Paul is using this imagery to say, this is what's happened in me. My body is falling apart because I have been committed to making disciples in Corinth. There is a great price to pay. And you might say, who would want to do something as crazy as that? Well, let me help you understand that because just look quick down at verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 4. For it is all for your sake. And then turn back to the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 5. He says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The only one who's willing to pay a price for someone else to become a disciple is someone who has become a servant of that person. Now, Downton Abbey has served our culture well because Americans don't have any idea what servanthood is all about. We're built on egalitarianism. We're all equal. We pull our own weight. But now that you've watched Downton Abbey, you understand what a servant is all about. A servant doesn't live for their own goals and desires and wishes. A servant exists for the pleasure and the will of the master. 
You say, well, how could anyone make themselves a servant for other people, not, not even related to them? And the answer is only people who have had someone become a servant for them, like God. You see, what we've just celebrated was Jesus becoming a servant for us, suffering and dying so that we might have life. And Paul says, Jesus, because you did that for me, I can do a similar thing for the Corinthians. And so I'm going to make myself their servant for your sake, Jesus, because I believe in what we have just celebrated that Jesus did for us. You see, a servant is not greater than his master. Do you understand what that means? If this was the path of Jesus, how could it not be our path? We have a vision statement at College Park that I love, igniting a passion to follow Jesus. But sometimes I wonder if we fully understand that. Do you know where the paths of Jesus led? See, you and I want to follow him to the mountainside where he fed the 5,000. We want to follow him into the home where he healed the sick and raised the dead. But we don't want to follow him to Gethsemane, do we? We don't want to follow him into the the courtyard of the high priest where he was mocked and tortured. And we certainly don't want to follow him to Golgotha where he gave his life for you and me. But that's what he did as our servant. And we need to follow in his footsteps. And if we're going to make disciples, we need to be ready to pay the price. Now, if that sounds morbid, it should not be news to you as a Christian. We've just celebrated death. And if you're not a Christian, this is what Christianity is all based on, the death of someone else for you, and then you following in your Savior's footsteps by dying for others. You see, you can't get something for nothing. There really is no free lunch in this battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, because Satan is not going to willingly give up his territory. It's going to pay, it's going to cost a price for us to invade and share the gospel and bring, bring people to maturity in Jesus Christ. And you say, how does this relate to me? I mean, Paul was the super apostle, and I'm just sitting here in the pew on a Sunday morning getting bashed over the head. If Paul was a nine on the suffering scale, I'm a, a point one. I've done squat. I'm not even sure how this applies to me. Well, let me just point out the pronouns in these first few verses. Did you notice that Paul is not giving just a personal testimony? He says, we have this treasure. He says, the body we carry around in our bodies, the dying of Jesus. And he means all believers. One commentator said, even without the physical dangers of Paul's career, anyone who throws themselves into the work of Christian ministry of any kind with half the dedication of Paul will experience the weakness of which Paul speaks. The times when problems seem insoluble, the times of weariness from sheer overwork, the times of depression when there seem to be no results. Anytime we try to make disciples, it's going to be hard, but here's what we need to understand. This is how it works in the kingdom of God. It is why you have life, and it's what it's going to cost you to bring life to others. Someone once asked George Mueller what was the success of his orphanages in England, and he hung his head and he said, there was a day that I died. There was a day that I died as well. 
I don't know if you guys know this, but as much as I love you, I really didn't ever want to be here at College Park Church. You know why? Because God had put deep within my heart during my college years an ambition to preach Christ where he not be, was not named. You guys know Christ. So, God led me and my wife in 1986 to go to Pakistan as missionaries, and we were in it for the long haul because you've got to learn the language, you've got to learn the culture, and God opened up a ministry for us, teaching at a Bible school, meeting Muslims, sharing Christ, and then in 1999, we ran into a brick wall. I came down with Meniere's disease, which is a, an inner ear condition that gives you severe episodes of vertigo and nausea. My wife, the same year, started to have pain in her neck and shoulders and in her arms, chronic pain that after several months and every kind of treatment we could imagine did not get better, and it sent her into a clinical depression. We didn't know what to do with our children's education. We'd had them in boarding, we had homeschooled them, and nothing was working. And here we were 13 years into our missionary ministry, and we were hemmed in. We came back on a two-month medical leave in the year 2000, and we never went back to Pakistan. The vision that God had given me died. See, but this is the price of making disciples of the nations. It's going to cost our dying. Well, what a depressing story that would be if it ended there. I mean, that would be like Good Friday without Easter. And if you noticed, we stopped reading verse 10 in the middle of the verse. See, while we need to be clear about the cost of disciple-making, we also need to understand its benefit. What is produced when a follower of Christ in proclaiming the gospel gives up his life? There are three products. If you're a businessman, this is your ROI. This is what you get back from giving up your life. And the first product is the life of Jesus in us. Verse 10, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also be manifested in our mortal flesh. You say, can't I have the life of Jesus without going through all that dying stuff? Can't I know him in an easier way? And, and I think you can, but... It depends how closely and how deeply you want to know Jesus. See, because Paul said in Philippians 3, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And in the same sentence, what did he go on to say? And the fellowship of his sufferings. You see, when we suffer for Christ to make disciples, we suffer with Christ. And we have a, a shared experience with him. And and in a way that's hard to describe, he comes near to those people who have suffered with him in his mission in this world. There is a sweetness and a depth and an understanding between us and Christ that you do not get without paying the price and dying first. And you get to see his power at work like never before. How was it that Paul in verses 8 and 9 was able to keep an optimistic tone in spite of all that had happened to him? Well, I think it was because he had Christ with him. And the life of Christ could be manifested when he was beaten, he could call on Christ to give him strength. When he was baffled, he could call on Christ to give him wisdom. He had the power of Christ in his life. And if you and I have got it, 
We never need the power of Christ and we're never gonna see the power of Christ. But it is in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. And so as you die to Christ, as you pay that price of dying, you are going to alongside with that see the life of Jesus manifested in your mortal body in a way that you never would have before. The second product is the life of Jesus in others, verse 12. A short verse, but really summarizes our whole text this morning. So death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, how was it that life came to the Corinthians? Paul says earlier in the chapter, in verse 2, that we proclaimed the truth to you. He says in verse 5, we proclaimed Christ Jesus as Lord. That's all I know how to do, he said, and I did that, and what happened? Verse 6, what happened? Just like on the first day of creation, when darkness was over the form of the earth, what did God do? God said, let there be light, and instantly there was light in the entire universe. And just like in the heart of the Apostle Paul who was walking in darkness, one day God said, let there be light, and there was so much light around Paul that he couldn't see anymore. And as he went, he reflected on what happened and that he had seen Jesus. Light flooded into his life because of a sovereign act of God. And Paul says, the same thing has happened with you, Corinthians. I came and preached Christ, and Christ in some of you declared, let there be light, and there was light. And you've suddenly now been brought into understanding the ministry of the new covenant, that in Jesus you have forgiveness of sins, you have righteousness, not condemnation. You have a ministry that brings glory. Go back to chapter three and see all of the things that came to them because Paul had been willing to pay the price to disciple them. There was life now in the city of Corinth in the lives of Corinthians who had been saved for all of eternity because he was willing to pay the price. Jesus made a great promise right before his own death. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth, and what? His whole point is it's got to die. But if it dies, what does it do? It bears much fruit. My friends, this is a kingdom principle that is bedrock and never fails to operate. When you die, Christ will bring life out of that in some way or other. I never told you the second part of our story. After we came back, realized that we would not be able to go back to Pakistan, I didn't know what I was going to do. I have a master's degree from a seminary. That's not highly employable in the marketplace. We had three teenage kids. I had to support them, didn't know what we were going to do. But God, in an amazing way, as I was beginning to look at job opportunities, would I drive a bus? I was talking to B Windows about maybe selling windows. I just didn't know what I had in store for my family, what God had for us. Well, my parents were missionaries in Pakistan, and Dale Shaw's parents were part of their supporting church. They supported our family back in the 1950s, and God brought the circle back together, and when Dale found out I was back in the States, he hired me at College Park Church to help him develop the Global Outreach Program, and so I was Dale's assistant for a number of years here at College Park, and that relationship blossomed, and now as I look back over 14 years of being at College Park Church, you know what I see? I see God's wisdom unfolding in manifold ways that I never would have dreamed or chosen. We have sent out by God's grace, about 30 missionaries in the years that I've been here. We've given millions of dollars to strategic overseas projects. God has given me a deeper level of understanding of the challenges that our missionaries face. I have a wider ministry now that I ever would have, than I ever would have conceived of as a missionary in Pakistan. And what has God done? He has brought life 
out of our death because that's his bedrock principle. Now, I realize that my wife and I have just, perhaps in comparison with you, tasted a thimbleful from the well of suffering. Many of you have gone through so much more than we have. There's a family in India that I want to briefly tell you about, Santosh and Linu. We're trained at the seminary that we partner with in North India. And they could have gone anywhere to do ministry, but God led them to a remote, isolated sugarcane field in the middle of nowhere in Patri, North India. Hot, no air conditioning, and they started a school there and began to start a church. God gave them a, a little girl who was severely disabled, and she lived for seven years, and then she died. And then God gave them another little girl, Ashrita. And they live in the city of Patri with this girl with severe congenital defects, never going to walk and talk normally. But you know what happens with them? They have to take her to the south of India, to Chennai, at least once a year for medical treatment. And a 36-hour train ride in India with a handicapped child is no picnic, let me assure you. But you know what? They do it with a smile on their face because they've embraced this dying that God has allowed to happen in their lives. And you know what happens because they've embraced it? They have people on the trains asking them, how can you smile when you have this death in your family? And God opens up a chance for them to share the words of life because of the death that he has allowed to happen. And I know many of you are in the same situation. You have situations in your life that have brought death to you. That is not by mistake. God wants to take those and he wants to to have you share them with people so that they can see how the life of Jesus can come in wherever there is dying. And then Jesus gets all the honor and praise. And that's the third product that is produced. More glory to God, verse 15. For it is all for your sake, so that his grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. What's happening? As the Corinthians were disciples, as they became like Christ, they also began to share Christ, and the ripples spread farther and farther, and more and more people are now not just enjoying life for themselves, but they're giving thanks to God. And so Paul says, because I was willing to die for you, now God is getting more glory because there are more worshipers of you in Corinth and the surrounding areas. What if Paul had played it safe? What if he had retreated at the first sign of danger? What if there had been a Department of State back in Paul's day? You know what the State Department does? They, in looking out for American citizens, are kind enough to issue travel warnings. You've seen them. You say, well, we can't go there because the State Department has issued a travel warning. What do you think the State Department would have done in the first century A.D.? There would have been travel warnings throughout the entire Roman Empire. There were bandits everywhere. This was tough to just get around. But Paul said, no, I'm going to pay whatever price to obey Jesus' command. And in my dying, God is going to bring forth living and life in the Corinthians and other cities. So is it worth it? Absolutely. This is the greatest thing that I could have given my life to, Paul says. My folks have retired on my great-grandpa's farm up in Noblesville at 166th and Bowdoin Road. And there used to be a pig farm right at that intersection. And on a warm summer's day, <laughs> you didn't want to be within a mile of that pig farm. The wind would blow just right. We couldn't even walk outside the house. But you know what farmers say about that smell? I bet some of you know. Smells like money. 
Why? You see, farmers can put up with the pain because they see the gain. And that's what Paul wants us to see. It's just a little smell. What's the big deal? God has a great product that he is producing through that. He has great value. You are earning an eternal reward. And so that brings us to the final lesson on disciple-making the promise. And this is just an amazing passage. There's actually three promises in here, verses 13 to 18. Three promises that Paul clings to in the midst of his difficulty. One is liquid. It can be cashed in immediately and continuously. The other two don't mature until your death. But here they are. They are promises that cannot be seen with the physical eyes because they don't concern the world that we can touch. They are promises that concern the world that we cannot see. And so we say by faith that we believe in these promises and that motivates us to make disciples. What are the promises? First, there's a promise of renewal, verse 16. So we do not lose heart. How could he not lose heart after all he had been through? Here's why. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. The Greek word for outer nature is the Greek word exo. We get the word exoskeleton from that, and you biologists will know what this is. Is this a dragonfly? No, this is just the outside shell of a dragonfly. And if you and I look at this picture and we saw that in our garden, we would think that's a dragonfly. But actually, the dragonfly is already gone and just left the exoskeleton behind. See, we're not even as smart as our dog, Stubby. Because if Stubby went up to this thing in the garden, he would know right away by sniffing that there's, this is not an important piece. This is just the, the, the superstructure. This is the scaffolding. The bug is actually gone. And what Paul is saying in verse 16 is that, yeah, we have this body, and it is not unimportant. It serves a function. And, and yet, it's being beaten up, and it's dying but that's no big deal because inside our real person is being renewed day by day. And how does that happen? He's already told us in chapter 3, verse 18. As we reflect on the glory of Christ day by day, we are transformed into his image. So if you feel like you're dying in ministry, the answer is very simple. Come back to Jesus. Look at him every single day. Read his word. Feast on him. And he will renew your spirit so that no matter what's happening with your body, you can continue on in the ministry that he's given you. The second promise is that of resurrection, verse 14. Knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. The end of this life is not the end of the story, he says. In fact, it's just the beginning. What Paul believed about the future had everything to do with how he lived in the present. He knows that one day he will be raised to life because Jesus was, and he's going to be raised to life as well. So what do these few years matter if we're in the end going to be raised and given new bodies and live forever with Jesus? Death and misery are not boundless. When God's enemies are through with their scorn and their torture and their instruments of death, they are through. But God is not. All they can do is kill. God is able to raise the dead, and he will. But finally, the last promise is astonishing. Verses 17 and 18, the reward. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. 
We need to look at this phrase for a minute. Excessively, this is how it literally is translated out of the Greek. Excessively to excess an eternal weight of glory. Do you know there's glory in store for those who give up their lives to disciple the nations? And how much glory? There is a weight of glory. There's a weight of glory that actually makes their troubles seem insignificant. And I'm not sure that you're really catching that, so let me just do a little illustration for you. Uh, This is a scales, and what Paul is saying here is this. In one side of the scales, I'm gonna put this cotton ball. This represents my light and momentary troubles. You say, wait a minute, that was a lot more than a cotton ball he just listed. No, he says, watch this. I'm gonna put that in this side of the scales. That is something, but it's not much. But he says, this is producing for me an eternal weight of glory. Something that is so heavy. Now, which side is heavier? I want you to remember this picture. This is our troubles. This is the reward that God has for us. It is an eternal weight of glory that is never going to be taken away from us. I'm not sure you're getting it yet. Are you getting it? Because... He goes on to say, in fact, he says, he uses the Greek word uh, excessively to excess, the Greek word hyperbole. He says, hyperbole upon hyperbole, God is giving us an eternal weight of glory if we're willing to die to disciple the nations. And, And here's maybe one way you can maybe understand that. Suppose you're a harried mom and you just haven't had a chance to clean the house for the last several weeks and things are just a mess and, and you just sit down on the couch when he said, I'd give a million bucks if somebody would clean this house up top to bottom. Now, if you're a kid here uh, listening, now you hear mom say that and you think, oh, maybe there's a chance for me to get a little something out of this. So a mom goes off shopping, you get to work in the house, you vacuum, you dust, you do all the dishes, you make it all spick and span. Mom comes back three hours later and she says, my goodness, what happened? I said, well, mom, I cleaned the house for you. And then if mom did this, what would you do? If she gave you, see, you're thinking she might give me 50 bucks, maybe. 100 if she's really feeling good. What if she gave you a million bucks? Now, when you woke up from shock, what would you think? That was all out of proportion to what I did. It didn't make any sense at all. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in verse 17. When we see that eternal weight of glory, we're going to say, God, this is ridiculous. I don't deserve any of this. And you've poured it out upon me. It's way more than I could even imagine. Yes, that is the promise that God gives us if we're willing to die for him to make disciples of the nations. And why don't we get this? Because we have spiritual myopia. We only see the stuff that is right close to us. Our culture has conditioned us to see only things that have counterfeit value and glory. The heavy becomes light and the long becomes short in the light of eternity. And so Paul concludes in verse 18, this is why we need to fix our eyes on things that are eternal and not temporary. You see, we can pick either column to focus on in life. Uh, This is what our culture typically teaches us to do and what our flesh does. We focus on the things that can be seen, on the hardships, on the struggles, on the light and momentary afflictions. But what he's saying is, no, those things are not unimportant, but let's not focus on them. Let's focus on these things. 
the things that can't be seen, the glory that God is getting and that we will receive in our reward, the being renewed inside, the heavy and eternal promise that God has given to us. And if we focus on these things, we will be willing to pay whatever price it costs to make disciples of the nations. So as we close, we need to ask this question, what does this have to do with me? I'm not Paul. I'm not a professional. I'm just a regular person. Well, I, think, I believe it has everything to do with disciple-making. I think there are two reasons we don't do more disciple-making. One is that we're not willing to pay the price. We have our routines and our comfort levels and our commitments in life, and there's just no room for anything else. We find ourselves punching the clock and paying the bills and cooking and taking our kids to sports events and it just goes on and on and on. And let me ask you, in the middle of all of that, which is not wrong, but who are you leading to maturity in Christ? You see, God can take every one of those things that you do as a part of your routine and give you opportunities to speak a word of witness, to speak a word of encouragement, to invite people into a deeper relationship with Christ. But it's going to cost you something to do that. I think the other reason we don't disciple make is that we don't know how. Well, it's not super complicated. You've journeyed with Christ so far. Just come alongside someone else and bring them to that level. Just take a word of witness. Or if you want to get more involved, meet with some folks on a weekly basis to, to discuss the word and to memorize it and to pray together, to encourage each other in the faith. There's a disciple-making guide you can get online at our website that will give you specifics about how you can be involved in making somebody else a closer follower of Jesus Christ. It's going to be hard. You're going to have to change something, but it is going to be far and away the best thing you have ever done. Let me give you a clue. There's never going to be time in your schedule, and you're never going to know enough to feel like you've got it, but that's perfect. Because in your jar of clay is when the strength of God can be perfected. I'd like you to think as we close about who it is that you are impacting in your neighborhood. I've spoken about discipling the nations. That's, that's a next step. Your first responsibility is with your family. Men, are you leading your children in family worship and study of God's word? Do not give up on that. How are you using your work environment to move people towards Jesus Christ, your neighborhood, the leagues that your kids play in? God's put you there for a reason but you're going to have to die to something in order to cross that bridge and move people to Jesus Christ. What do you need to do differently to disciple people? What price do you need to pay to see life come to others? Well, how are you going to remember this morning's sermon? We actually have an illustration here on stage that's been here for over a year. I, I noticed this a number of months ago. I'm not real observant, but I did see this kind of graffiti looking stuff on the back of this piano. And it brought back memories of Greek class in seminary. And I, I said, I'm pretty sure that's the word death and, and that's the word life. And then I said, ah, oh, that's what this means. This means death into life. And Katie Porsche, who drew this actually on this side of the piano, drew a picture to, to illustrate that for us. Do you see the red roots? That's the cost of discipleship. It's our blood. It's what we pay in order to bring the message of Christ and the goal of maturity in him to other people. But what happens is from that 
sacrifice, a beautiful, strong tree grows up and bears fruit for eternal life. Death into life. That's what Jesus did for us, and he wants us to do it for others. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we once again, as we already did during the Lord's Supper, want to thank you for being our servants, for giving your life so that we could live. And we want to do the same thing now for others. Lord, convict us. Some of us are like the parable of the soils where the, the seed is planted and it started to come up, but the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are choking it off and we are unproductive for your kingdom. Might that change today. Take our lives and use them to bring life to others. We ask for the glory of your name and in the sending power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.